This morning we will be in the book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 1 for a few verses and then in chapter 2. As we come to God's Word this morning, kids, I'd like you to think about what would be the best thing ever, the best experience, the thing that would excite you the most, the thing that would maybe um, make you feel the most um, joy, the most hope? What would be something that you can think of that would almost be like things were perfect? Adults think about the same thing. I'm sure we have all have different kinds of ways that we'd answer that question. What would be the perfect day, the perfect experience, the perfect thing to happen to us. We all have these ideas of what this would look like. Part of what we sense and what we feel in wanting to like experience those things or hope for those things is, is something that the Bible calls shalom. The reason we have these longings for something really perfect and good and hopeful is this idea that the Bible in the Hebrew calls shalom. We're going to be looking at what is this shalom as it relates to our relationships as it relates to one another, as it relates to how we interact with all things. Before we get there, for two seasons, beginning in April of 2006, there was a TV show on TLC called Shalom in the Home. It was a reality TV show that sought to help dysfunctional families. Rabbi Shmuley, well, it's got to be one of the greatest names Ever. Rabbi Shmuley provided advice and, about relationships, marriage, and parenting. In each episode, he worked with a family for 10 days to help them come to terms with their problems and to find skills they need to help improve their situation. He would drive up to each house in an Airstream trailer equipped with television monitors, and cameras were installed in the home, and he would watch the family interact with one another and capture this footage of the family's dynamics. And then Rabbi Shmuley would bring the parents into the trailer, which was the kind of neutral territory, and show them the footage. He would gently confront them with how their family's family was dysfunctional in hopes of kind of shocking them into change. He also used other techniques. He would have family members wear like earpieces so he could encourage positive interaction and, encourage, and discourage negative interaction and dysfunctional behaviors. Sometimes he'd take the family on field trips 
take them outdoors to an outdoor outing or to an activity to help them see how they should interact in those situations. While it might be helpful to have someone like Rabbi Shmuley pull up in his Airstream in our driveway or out on the street and give advice on how to have better relationships, it's not likely going to happen. Seeing a counselor, meeting with a pastor or other trusted person can certainly be helpful and beneficial, and I would encourage it if you find yourself in need, if you find yourself needing help in this area with relationships in your life. As good and helpful as those means are, we need more. We need God's Word. We need to know how God has intended our relationships to function, to seek shalom. As I said, shalom is this Hebrew word. It's, it's always, almost always translated in our modern translations as peace. But shalom is so much more than just an absence of conflict. Shalom is a description of how things are supposed to be, how all of God's creation, including humanity, is to function in wholeness. So over the next three and a half months throughout the summer, we'll be coming to God's Word to see what He says about our relationships, about the shalom of God being what is to define our relationships, and how by God's grace we begin to live in that shalom in every sphere of life. So let's read Genesis 1, beginning at verse 26. For those of you unfamiliar with the Bible, we're beginning at the very end of the first description that the Bible gives of creation, that God created all things by the power of his word. And so we come to this final aspect of the creation. Begin at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Then down to verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then jumping down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man be alone. I should make, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you begin by showing us the goodness, the glory, the wonder of your creation. You begin by showing us the way things were meant to be, the way things were supposed to be. Lord, you give us a glimpse into that. So Lord, we pray that you would help us as we come to this text today to know what you intended, to understand that the way we experience this world is not always the way it's supposed to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So with today, we begin our new series titled Shalom in the Home. Shout out to Rabbi Shmuley. And everywhere else. Shalom in the home and everywhere else. As I said, we'll take the next three and a half months to see what God has to say about our various relationships. Our relationship with him, with spouse, children, parents, co-workers, classmates, bosses, employees, neighbors, the creation, our work, our rest. The list is almost endless in how we could go through scripture and look and see how all of our relationships are to be those that bring about shalom, those who are to experience shalom and how God has intended that to be. But in order to know what, those, what these relationships are supposed to function, how they're supposed to function, what they're supposed to be like, we need to know what God intended. And as I've mentioned already once to this morning in the sermon and in our prayer, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. 
Whether you are a student of Scripture, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or not, you know intuitively that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And how do we know that? How do we have this innate sense that the world as we experience is not fully the way it's supposed to be? It's because the world was at one time the way it was supposed to be. See, the world and our relationships within the various spheres of life are not the way they are supposed to be. Because of sin entering the world, what we call the fall, we live in a broken and dysfunctional world. We as human beings are sinful, and so because of our sin and the broken and dysfunctional nature of the world, all of our relationships are polluted, are stained, are broken in some way or another. So in order to understand what's wrong, what's not good, we need to know what it was like when it was right, when it was all very good. And this idea is what the Hebrew prophets, what the Hebrew scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament describes as shalom. Cornelius Plantiga, a theologian, gives a good working definition of shalom. He defines it this way. He says, it's the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation and justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness of delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruit. Uh, fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So today, what I want us to look at is, the main, po main point today is, in the beginning, shalom. Shalom with God, Shalom with creation and shalom with one another. Now, the word shalom doesn't appear in Genesis 1 and 2. It doesn't appear in Genesis 1 and 2 because nothing in Genesis 1 and 2 is lacking. It's only later throughout the scriptures that, that this idea of shalom begins to come in because humanity begins to understand and to experience that the way that things are, the way things are not supposed to be. Now, the word doesn't appear in just one and two, but it's how we know how the world was supposed to be. It's how we actually know what we long for in shalom. It's why we long for something better. And so, I'd like us to just walk through our passage today and look at shalom with God, shalom with creation, and shalom with one another. First, with God. Our reading this morning began in Genesis 1, and we have this clause, then God said, let us make man. You might be thinking, well, who's God talking to? Is he talking to himself? Yes. <laughs> yes. God's talking to himself. He's talking to the persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are speaking amongst themselves, and they're saying, let us make man. It's this 
Trinitarian unity. It's let us create. Let us do this. Let us create them in our image and after our likeness. This is what theologians call the Imago Dei, the image of God. The greatest wonder of, of all is humanity. The greatest wonder of all the things that God has created, the vastness of the universe, the wonder of the universe, the glories of the earth, all these things are not surpassed by the glory of humanity, the image of God. And God calls his image bearers to rule over the earth in verses 26 and 28. They have dominion over the earth. God views his image bearers as royal figures as prince and princesses, as vice regents over creation. It's what astonished the psalmist in Psalm 8 that we read earlier in our call to worship. What is man? <laughs> you should be mindful of him. You've created him a little lower than the angelic beings and have given him dominion. These image bearers, you'll notice... Not only are they bearing God's image, but they can also respond because they can hear the word of God. None of the other creatures respond that God has made in this way. Image bearers are meant to rule over creation. Image bearers are created offspring of God with the real possibilities of eternal Sonship. Man and women are glorious. They stood there before the fall, before their fall into sin, as vice regents of creation in a state of spiritual, social, and ecological perfection. God had given them everything every seed bearing plant, the fruit bearing tree for food. They are at peace with God and with nature. And what does God say in that moment? And God saw everything that he made. And behold, it was very good. This is how God intended things to be. Spiritual, social, and ecological perfection. All of those aspects of God's creation the image bearers of God, the created order, God himself, all together in this harmony, in this shalom. And so we see that this God creates his image bearers, places them in place of authority and glory, and places them a place of care for creation and for one another. And we see that as we move into chapter 2, this, this God, right? This Elohim is what the Hebrew term for God up until this point, some 36 times throughout chapter 1. 
And then all of a sudden in chapter two, we see God's name change slightly. We see it change to Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. And what's interesting about this, for those of you who have been in this congregation for, uh, for a while, you know why this is interesting, why this is helpful, why we see this, and it should make us kind of perk up a bit. Because the author of Genesis is Moses. Moses, in writing this, is writing this after God has revealed himself to his people with a special name, a name that is only given to them, a name that they have as this special, covenantal, loving God who reveals himself not with a title, but with his character, which is Yahweh. And so as we move from chapter one to chapter two in Genesis, we see that not not only is this Elohim, this God, this magical or this uh, majestic being out there who has created and placed his his image bearers on the earth, but it is this God, this Elohim, this Yahweh Elohim who has who has literally come to rescue his people out of the bonds of slavery, has revealed himself in the wilderness. These people who Moses is writing this account down for come to this part of the creation account and are like, wait a minute, our God? The one who rescued us? the one who cares for us, the one who's leading us, the one who's established his covenant, his never-ending, always and forever love with us. Wait, that's the God who did all this? Who created all this? Who created us? I mean, it's not all those gods that we worshiped in Egypt. Or it's not just some other spiritual being out there, but this is our God who desires a relationship with us. It's almost like Moses is making this big reveal, like he's building and building, and he's like, guess what, guys? Moses reveals that this Elohim, this general term for a majestic being of God is Yahweh. He's both creator and covenant redeemer. He is both creator, all powerful, can throw universes into being, and yet comes into relationship with us to rescue us. This change in name focuses us on the fact that there is a relationship change. There's a relationship between the man and the woman 
and this God who has created all things. And so it is with us. We are brought into this story of the way the world is supposed to be. And yet, we realize that the way the world is not the way it's supposed to be, marred by the fall. Yet there is still this dignity of the image of God still in us. But what do we do with the Word of God? Do we seek knowledge apart from it? Do we believe we know the better way to shalom? God says, I am here to be in relationship with you, to show you, to be with you. But where is our hope? Because we know this is not the way it is. Our hope is in Christ, who Paul says in Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. What awaits each and every Christian, those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, is the likeness of Christ. Just as we have been born in the image of man, of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. The destiny of believers in Christ is to be his image. See, Christ is creating a new, renewed creation. We are given new selves. We are given new, that image is being renewed in us. Everything is being recreated in the image of Christ. All our hope rests on Jesus, the perfect bearer of the Imago Dei. Paul, in, as I mentioned in Colossians 1.15, says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. But then he follows that in verses 16 through 18, and he says that Jesus is not only the firstborn, he's not only the image of the invisible God, but he's the one who creates and sustains, and he is the goal of the entire universe. And so God recreates us in Christ to be in shalom with him. That's how God intended it to be. That's what God is doing in Christ, recreating us in his image to be in shalom with him. It's not just with God himself, it's with his creation. And as we, we didn't read the whole thing, but as you think about his creation, we can never forget the mind, that the mind of God created all of this, everything, the heavens, the universe, all of the earth. And when we think on that, when we take time, we learn something of God, as Psalm 19 says, Day by day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And so God calls us 
into relationship with his creation. He calls us as his image bearers into this relationship. He calls us to explore the galaxies and learn something of him. He calls us to use the microscope to peer into the complexity of the human cell and to learn more, go deeper into the atom and its quirks and leptons and learn more and more. We're to touch and taste and feel the things that he has given us. We are to understand, participate, not just in who he is, but in how he has created us to interact with his creation. We must never stop our mind at what we see. We must think on the immortal hand and eye of God that saw it all and said it was very good. We don't worship nature, but we worship the creator of the material universe. He called his handiwork good, and so it represents his thoughts. It's beautiful and joyous. And the God who created all of this did it to form an environment for us, for humanity. That his children might understand a bit more of who he is through what we explore, what we see, how we do it. He created it for us to be creative, to care for and build from his creation, to mirror him and his creative design and desire to be creative as well, to care for the creation, to tend it, to build from it. We are also in the created order shown that we are to not simply use and exploit the creation, which Sadly, we have often done, but we are to rest from this creative work. We are to cease as God himself rested from his creative work. We are to mirror our God. We are to find this rest, this pattern of this seventh day of resting. God rested from his creative works, but he continues in his sustaining work and his power and his governance by providence, by ensuring the propagation of his creatures. He didn't completely stop working. He stopped his creative acts. He rested from those. And we live in this creative rest of God he calls us to be creative, but we are yet to model and mirror our God and to rest from this creation tending, to rest from this work. God's rest was one of deep pleasure and satisfaction of the fruit of his labor. God's blessing bestows on this special holy, solemn day, a power which makes it fruitful for us. His blessing gives this day, which is a day of rest, the power to stimulate, to animate, to enrich, and give fullness of life. The seventh day is one of, as one theologian put it, perpetual spiritual spring, a day of multiplication and fruitfulness. Right? He, the, the reason that 
we see that is that because when God blesses in Genesis 1 and 2, he's blessing for fruitfulness and for multiplying. And he blesses the Sabbath day in the same way, the seventh day. He makes it holy, a day of rest that brings about multiplication and fruitfulness. The Jewish theologian Abraham Heischel writes this, it is a day on which we are called upon to show what is eternal in time, to turn from the results of creation to the mystery of creation, from the world of creation to the creation of the world. Our relationship with creation is one of exploration, delight, work, and rest. That is the way it's supposed to be. And then finally, we see the shalom with one another. You know, it's interesting that the observation and declaration of Adam's need is all God's, right? Adam doesn't, isn't formed here in chapter two and then is like, yo, God, just me? God did not consult Adam. <laughs> Adam maybe didn't even have any idea that he, it was not good for him to be alone. God wasn't responding, as I said, to complaint. But he was assessing the situation. And he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he says that he'll create a helper. Right? The, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of everything, and the Lord God said in verse 18, is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then it describes that all the animals were formed and they were brought to Adam and Adam was to, to see them and to know them and to name them. What's interesting here is that this term helper is not a diminishing term. Some might think, oh, you know, God's gonna make a helper for Adam, like some, you know, you know assistant to walk along not a diminishing term. It's the name used to describe God as the helper of Israel, one who comes along in a time of need. So he creates woman to be a corresponding counterpart. As the counterpart, she would share in this nature that had been given to Adam, this imago Dei. Male and female were created in the image of God. And as his matching opposite, she would supply what was lacking in him and he in her. Adam does eventually come to this realization that there's none fit for him. After God has called, has created all of the beasts, the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to, to Adam, he realizes after he's spent time getting to see them in action and know them and understand them, he naming them, he realizes there is none that is fit for him. He found, he did not find an equal companion who is fit for him. And so God brings him the woman who is his equal companion, who is fit for him, and he is no longer alone. He is no longer alone. And, you know, we see here this, this rejoicing in, in Adam, right? This idea that 
He's, he's found no one fit for him. And then God creates woman, brings him to Adam. And Adam is like, finally like, yes, this is my equal. This is my equal companion. This is the one fit for me. He rejoices. He suddenly becomes a poet, poet laureate here. He rejoices in what God has done. And then we see this end of the, of the passage. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know, leave here is not necessarily literal. The family structure in Moses' day in the ancient world was, not, was for the son to stay with his father's household and his wife would come be a part of the family. But because it's not necessarily literal, it doesn't diminish its importance. It must be understood as a prescription for the loyalty and intimacy that a man must give his wife and vice versa. He must leave his family. The union with his wife is so profound that he leaves his family even though he remains with them. His first obligation and loyalties are to his wife and she to him. And they are to hold fast or stick together. They are to stick to one another. Literally, that's the Hebrew. They are to stick to one another. For Adam and Eve, God defined humanity, sex, love, relationship, everything God defines for them and gives them, and it is good. And it might be easy for us to get caught and think that this is just about marriage relationships here that, that God is, is outlining for us and giving us a picture of the way it was supposed to be. And primarily, yes. I mean, obviously, there's a man and a woman coming together. It's literally almost as if there's a marriage ceremony going on here where God the Father is walking Eve down the aisle, so to speak. But there's more here than just that. God is giving the foundation for all of our relationships. Now, while all relationships don't experience the sexual intimacy that husband and wife do, the desire for all relationships in our lives is to literally be naked and unashamed. Now, not literally naked and unashamed, but to experience all relationships of life where we could be naked and unashamed where others in our lives can actually see who we really are and we can see who they really are and we can be unashamed. That we can interact with them and not have to put on masks or build walls or find ways to keep them at arm's length or figure out ways to, to be able to negotiate with one another. That's what it means to be naked and unashamed in this, in this context. And this is what all of our relationships are supposed to be. This is how God intended for everything, all of our relationships, not just husband and wife. All of our relationships are, it's the way God intended it to be, that we would be naked and unashamed. We would be able to bear our fullness of ourselves in front of others and not be ashamed. 
and they be able to bear the fullness of themselves to us and not be ashamed. So yes, husbands and wives, but parents and kids, brothers and sisters, friends, neighbors, co-workers, employees. It goes on and on and on and on. Because if you think about how all of our relationships, where they begin to fall apart is that we truly cannot be and bear ourselves and be unashamed. Right? No matter whether it's in our families, our workplaces, our neighbors, our communities, wherever our friendships, wherever those relationships are, there's always a sense that if I fully lived as myself, there would be shame. But God intended for us to be naked and unashamed. That is the shalom of relationships that he created us to be in. And yet because of sin, we do find ourselves covering up. We do find ourselves ashamed. We do find ourselves trying, putting on other images, other ways of relating with one another. God in Christ Jesus is the one who restores our relationships, who allows us to find our true identity in him, that we can begin <laughs> step by step, place by place, situation by situation, to be willing to be naked and unashamed. I'll close with this. I think as we have been in this time of stay-at-home orders, we need to evaluate our relationships. We need to understand that this time has caused some interesting <laughs> and quite devastating aspects of our lives. We've been cut off from relationships that we desperately desire. We've been forced, quote unquote, into relationships with maybe those that we've begun to see in different ways My neighbor, Chris, is actually the reason why we started the series. We were talking, and he's like, hey, what series is next? What's coming up after Isaiah? And I said, well, it was several weeks ago, and I said, I'm still trying to figure that out. And he goes, you know what? 
I think we're all struggling with relationships. We've been cut off from many that we normally have. We've, they've changed in how we interact with our coworkers, with our family members, with those who are not within our physical home, all these different ways. He's like, it can be really helpful to walk through and think through what does it look like for these relationships in our lives. And I appreciate that. God using him to remind me and to reevaluate and to look at how I think this time has really, in some good and in some bad ways, have really changed the way we relate to one another and has wounded us deeply in some ways. And so how do we think about seeing those relationships restored? How do we think about coming out of this, how we might reevaluate the way that we relate not only to one another, but to God and and to His creation? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for this reality of shalom. Lord, it at times seems to slip through our fingers. And oftentimes it does, Lord, because of our sin or the sin of others or the way that sin has broken our world. But Lord, you promise that you are making all things new. You promise that you are recreating us in your image. And so, Lord, we have this hope. We have a future hope that we know that all things will be made new. We have this future hope that our relationships will all be made right. And yet, Lord, we have this hope that that begins here and now. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us this vision of shalom, this hope of shalom. And, Lord, that we would seek by the work of your Spirit to see shalom in the home and everywhere else pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by singing all creatures of our God and King.